I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians uh, chapter 3. Colossians uh, chapter 3, as uh, we continue on in the book of Colossians tonight, we'll be uh, specifically uh, considering verses 8 and 9 of uh, Colossians 3, but we'll, we'll go ahead and, and jump back up to verse 5, and uh, we'll go ahead and read down through verse 11, but particularly tonight we'll be in verses 8 and 9. So uh, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also must put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Now, the last time we were in Colossians 3, a few weeks ago, we began looking at these things which we must put to death, uh, these things which we must mortify. There in verse 5, we saw the, the sexual sins, immorality and impurity, and then we also saw the internal sins of the heart, the sins of passion, evil desire, and greed. We saw and considered that the wrath of God comes because of these things, and therefore they must be put to death. Even though, as unbelievers, prior to coming to Christ, we had once walked and lived in these sins. And while verse 5 seems largely directed toward sexual sins, both in their external manifestations and in the, uh, the internal heart desires which lie behind them, uh, and the issue of greed... Here in verses 8 and 9, we are confronted with a different set of sins. The sins of the mouth and the sins of the heart, which lead to these sins of the mouth. There's a connection between the heart and the mouth. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, 34, that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So it's no wonder that Paul here makes this connection and lists sins of the heart and sins of the mouth immediately afterwards because these sins of the mouth are merely the, the fruit of what is in the heart. And concerning both, he says, they must be put off because we have put off the old self, the old man with its practices. Now, let's consider here what he says. But you uh, now also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice. Anger, wrath, and malice. These are sins of the heart. Now, what are they, and what is meant by the words? Well, anger and wrath are closely related and can, at least in English, sometimes be used almost as synonyms for one another. But I think a, a slight distinction can be made, and uh, the anger has been helpfully defined as a strong feeling of displeasure and belligerence aroused by a wrong. Wrath, on the other hand, 
is abiding anger connected with a desire of vengeance. And so you can you can see there's there's some overlap and there's there's some close connection there. But I think I think the Huguenot preacher Jean Dale drew uh, the distinction and yet the connection between the two together helpfully when he was speaking of anger on the one hand and then wrath on the other. He said, one is the beginning, the other is the form and consistency of the passion. There's this continuation uh, that manifests itself in wrath. He said, one is the first gust of the storm, the other is the continuation of it. The one enkindles, the other burns our hearts. The one puts fire to them, the other keeps it in. And so there's this idea that wrath is kind of the, the continuation of, of this anger that is, has once begun, and wrath kind of takes it to a deeper level and continues it. And connected with both of these is malice. Now, a dictionary definition of malice is the desire to inflict injury, harm, or suffering on another, either because of a hostile impulse or out of deep-seated meanness. Don't you, don't you love it that a dictionary would speak of something as deep-seated meanness? There is such a thing. A malicious person has been compared to a miner, a miner who works underground. He plots and lays his plans, kind of lays the groundwork to wreak havoc, and no one knows it. He's underground, and then pow, he pops out and does what he does, namely inflicting injury, harm, or suffering. And these things are sinful. We must put them off. But this may raise a couple of questions. Number one, why are these things sinful? I think in our gut instinct, we, we kind of know these things are wrong, and clearly they are because we're called to put them off, but, but why? And then secondly, how do we put them off? Now, as to the sinfulness of anger, I think we get some hint by the words of James, James chapter 1, when he says, Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, or the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. In other words, our anger does not lead us to walk in the ways of God and to walk in accordance with the commandments of God. Anger, when it gains the upper hand within us, clouds our judgment, and it causes us to suspend the use of right reason and the use of wisdom for a time. Now, my granny once told me a story related to an ugly church split uh, back uh, close to where I grew up, probably back in the 1950s or so. And uh, there, were, there were rival factions in uh, the church that had split, and I think rival leaders, rival preachers as well. And uh, things apparently came to a head over which group had legal right to use this this campground uh, that was connected with the church. They were going to have kind of a revival-style camp meeting. And as I understand the story, these two rival leaders were having a bit of a confrontation at uh, the gate of the campground. And I'm a little bit fuzzy on the details, and uh, my granny is no longer with us, so uh, I can't go to her to get the details. But uh, as I understand it, as Granny told it, one of these preachers' wives either kicked the other preacher or kicked the other preacher's wife, and in the kicking, broke her own toe. And as my Granny was, was telling the story, my brother was, was there with us, and he asked Granny 
if that woman's broken toe ever healed? And Granny said, yes, but it took a long time. And I think you see the point, that when anger gains the upper hand, it clouds our judgment, and the suspension for a time of reason and wisdom. I don't really know anything about this woman other than the story as told there. I'm hopeful that most of the time she was much more reasonable, much more wise, much, much more Christian in her conduct. I don't know, I'm just hoping. But the point is that when we're angry, when we have wrath and malice within us, we are acting on the impulse of the moment. We're acting like unreasoning animals. Our anger leads us to speak sinful words, leads us to commit sinful actions, and then when the anger has subsided and we get ourselves under control, we may regret the words, we may regret the actions, but the words won't come back. The actions won't be undone. Those things are out there. The damage they've inflicted has been done. Now, we may be able to to go and repair and repent, and we can repent, and we may be able, by God's grace, to restore the, the damage that has been done to relationships, but once the words are out there, there's no way that they can't be out there. Once the sinful actions have been done, there's no way that they can't be done. Just think, for instance, of some biblical examples of anger that has gotten out of hand. We read Genesis 4 at the opening of Cain, right? Cain became angry. The Lord said, why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain was angry. This anger persisted in wrath, the desire for revenge. He took his revenge because his brother was righteous and he was not. In the end, was murder. Same thing happened with Simeon and Levi in Shechem. Their sister Dinah was raped. They were angry about that. There's a righteous way to be angry. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But they were angry And they let their anger become sinful. They killed the whole town. And therefore Jacob says concerning them, Lord willing, we'll see this next week, Genesis 49, let not my soul enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men. And in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. It was apparently a saying in olden times that an angry man makes himself the judge and would have God to be the executioner. Sometimes anger, in anger, we make ourselves the judge and we make ourselves the executioner. Is it any wonder then that Solomon says to us, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 9. Is it any wonder that he says in Proverbs 22, verses 24 and 25, do not associate with a man given to anger, or go with a hot-tempered men, or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. On the contrary, when we trust the providence of God in our circumstances and entrust all judgment to him for the evils that we have endured, This fortifies us so that we can avoid this kind of anger and wrath. We 
put this sinful anger and this wrath off by trusting in God. And as we'll see uh, later on, uh, as we move forward in Colossians 3, we'll see that we put on this heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And Lord willing, we'll see that as we, as we move ahead in future weeks. But as I said, we were going to get to it. What about righteous indignation? Right? There is a way in which, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, we can be angry and yet not sin, right? He says, be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on, their, on your anger. And so there is a, a caveat that needs to be said with regard to anger, because there is such a thing as righteous indignation. And the difference between righteous indignation and sinful anger is this. The anger which is sinful is unjustifiable in its beginning, or it goes on to an end which is unjustifiable, or it leads to sinful conduct along the way. It either starts with something sinful, it ends with something sinful, or we do something sinful with it as we go from beginning to end. Now, righteous indignation, on the other hand, righteous anger has rightly been defined as arising from a good motive, namely, from the love of God and of our neighbor, and tends to a good end, the glory of God and the correction of our neighbor, and proceeds according to a prescribed rule. In other words, the anger starts with a good motive. Because we're loving God, and we're loving our neighbor, and we want what is right. And it proceeds on to a good end, to the correction of the neighbor, and it proceeds according to a prescribed rule. Namely, obedience to all the commands of God from start to finish. And it's not just that anger is sometimes okay. Some things actually should make us angry. Bernard of Clairvaux in the Middle Ages said, Not to be angry with what one ought to be angry is to be unwilling to amend sin. And so we do need to be aroused to righteous indignation sometimes and to correct our neighbor But we must proceed from beginning to end according to a prescribed rule, namely the word of God. And so we must understand then, obviously, that the command here in verse uh, verse 8 about putting aside anger is not to say that all anger is sinful. But I would tend to say that for the most part, most of the anger that we feel, more than likely, is probably sinful. Now, Maybe, if you're further along in the path of sanctification, maybe most of the anger that you feel is righteous indignation. That's, that's great if that's you. My sense is that for most of us, probably, we're still dealing with the kind of anger that is forbidden in our text, this kind that we must put off. And so we have to put this anger, this wrath, and this malice to death. We have to recognize that vengeance belongs to God. We have to do what Romans 13, 20 uh, commands us, that instead of taking revenge, it is our duty to overcome evil with good. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. We love our enemies. We do good to them. Even if we are righteously indignant, we must still do good. We are never excused from loving. 
our brothers, our sisters, our neighbors, our enemies. We must love one and all. And as Paul continues speaking here of these evils that must be put off, he shifts from the sins of the heart, anger, wrath, and malice, to sins of the mouth. And we, we find three of them, two in verse 8 and then the third in verse 9. And so we see that there is slander, and then uh, what New American Standard renders as abusive speech. Uh, some other translations might render it as obscene speech or filthy communication as the second, and then the third is lying. Now, with, uh, with respect to slander, the, the word in Greek is, is the word blasphemy, it's, and it's derived from, uh, from a Greek phrase or two words in Greek, which means injuring or disparaging the fame of another by reproachful and evil words. That's that's what this is getting at when it, uh, when it speaks of slander. It's talking about disparaging the fame of another by reproachful and evil words. Now, as the word slander is defined in English, it includes with it the idea of falsehood. And so a dictionary definition of the word slander is a malicious, false, and defamatory statement or report. And if we think about what has come before, namely these three sins of the heart, anger, wrath, malice, we can easily see here why slander follows immediately. Right? Anger, wrath, and malice can come out in various ways. We saw the murderous coming out of it with, with Cain and with Simeon and Levi in Shechem, but anger, wrath, and malice can come out not with a sword or with a club, but from the tongue. It can work its way out in the spreading of evil reports uh, about the one toward whom we have this anger, wrath, and malice. That can be our way of getting them, is by slandering them. And so sometimes vengeance is not taken by blows, but by speech. Speech designed to ruin the reputation of another. Now, Luther, uh, in his exposition of the commandment, uh, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, spoke on the subject of slander. And he said this, he said, Those then are called slanderers who are not content with knowing a thing, but proceed to assume jurisdiction. And when they know a slight offense of another, carry it into every corner and are delighted and tickled when they can stir up another's displeasure as swine roll themselves in the dirt and root in it with the snout. This is nothing else than meddling with the judgment and office of God and pronouncing sentence and punishment with the most severe verdict. For no judge can punish to a higher degree nor go further than to say he is a thief, a murderer, a traitor, etc. Therefore, whoever presumes to say the same of his neighbor goes just as far as the emperor and all governments, for although you do not wield the sword, you employ your poisonous tongue to the shame and hurt of your neighbor. That's, that's slander, employing our poisonous tongue to the shame and hurt of our neighbors. This is bad. This flows directly in line with anger, wrath, malice. You can see why slander would be the next thing on the list. And then comes uh, what the New American Standard has rendered as abusive speech. I think those translations that would, would render it as obscene talk or filthy language or something along those lines is probably 
pointing more in the right direction because it does does seem that, that something lewd in the speech is uh, is what is intended. Uh, the, the New American Standard rendering of abusive speech seems like you're you're hollering at somebody or just just giving them a hard time. Where is really it does seem that it's it's something unclean about the speech itself. And uh, if I can quote uh, Jean Dale again, he said that he who indulges in filthy communication fills the ears of others with pollution, fouls the purity of their hearts, and shows the infection of his own. Filthy and dishonest conversation discovers the impurity and unchastity that are in the soul of him who uses it. And so this is filthy conduct that comes out in filthy joking, etc. And so in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, 4, Paul says that among believers, uh, they are not to engage in filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. And so slander, this filthy talk, evil communication, these are completely out of bounds for us as Christians. And then the last sin of the tongue that he mentions there in uh, going on to verse 9 is the, the sin of lying speaking falsehood with the intention of deceiving. Now, if you were with us in Sunday school uh, a couple of weeks ago, or I guess last Sunday morning, we spoke at some length about the, the issue of truth-telling, lying, those kinds of things. I'm not intending to, uh, to rehash all of that here, but we need to, to note, lying is prohibited. Scripture says, fires go to hell. And uh, again, to quote the, the parallel passage in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4.25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And now let's, let's face it, it can be very tempting to lie. Now, we might not like to say that, but it can be very tempting to lie. We like to save face, at least, at least I do. We like to make ourselves look good, or at least not so bad as we might look. We like to make circumstances work for our advantage, be it financial, be it relationally, etc. But we have to take off lying, because lying, Paul says, belongs to the old self, belongs to the corrupt nature from which springs all of these corrupt practices. Ultimately, lying comes from the devil, for Jesus tells us that he is a liar and is the father of lies, John 8, 44. We have to set it aside called to be people of truth. Jesus himself is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. We are called to be people of truth. And so notice how Paul grounds this here in verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. He's grounding these imperatives here on what has already happened in the life of these Christians. So in Christ, we have laid aside our old nature, the, the old man. We have been made new, and therefore we must lay aside all of these corrupt practices that pertain to the old nature that has been laid aside. And we lay it aside by mortifying it, as we spoke last week in verse 5, or a couple weeks ago, rather. And we also lay it aside, as Paul says here, by putting on the new man, and he, he goes on to speak about that in verse 10 and following, and Lord willing, we'll, uh, we'll speak more on that as we continue on in Colossians. But as we close for tonight, I want you to see these sinful things, these, these six things, the, the anger, the wrath, 
the malice, the slander, the filthy communication, and the lying. I want you to see these things for what they are. Though sometimes we may be tempted to justify one, or maybe some, or maybe all of these things, we need to recognize that these things belong to the old man. These things pave the pathway to death. Though they may appear to be right and beneficial to us, we might think these are good tools to have in our tool bag when we suffer from the misdeeds of others. And maybe we'll feel justified in embracing them or in using them. I have to remember that these things are wicked. These things pertain to the corrupt nature. These things have no place in our lives as Christians. And these things rather belong to life outside of Christ, that life that Paul described in Titus 3.3 when he said, We also were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's where these sins of the old man are located. They're located in the foolish and hateful life of death. If we can speak of it that way. It's the foolish and hateful life of those who are living in death. For all who are in Christ, I have to recognize this is a thing of the past. Christ has shown us a better way by his teaching and his example. But more than that, he has also given us new life, given us new hearts by means of his death and resurrection. And so we must put off these things of the old man and we must put on the new man, the new man that Christ has made us to be. We must seek to walk in the paths of the Lord and to be, in truth, that new creation that Christ has made us to be, where he says, uh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have gone, new things have come. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we know the old man, the old nature, the corrupt nature all too well. And Lord, we, none of us are strangers to anger and malice. We're tempted to slander. We're tempted to speak shameful things and to lie. Lord, we ask that you would help us to put these things aside, that we may be who you have made us to be in Christ, that we may live new as we have been made new in Christ. Lord, we pray for your spirit that that he would be with us, that he would strengthen us, that we may put off these old things and that we may rather put on the new man. We may live in accordance with your commandments. We pray, Father, by the working of your Spirit within us, we'd be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray that we'd be looking to him, fixing our eyes on him, and running with perseverance the race marked out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.